Uh, have you ever had this? Tell me if you've experienced this, okay? You're looking for your sunglasses, okay? And, and you're running around the house from room to room. For some of you, it's your keys. I don't know. But you're looking for your glasses. You're running around the house room to room, and you're searching everywhere frantically, and you can't find them. And then what happened to me a few days ago, my six-year-old kid looks at me as he's crunching granola, and he's like, Dad, they're uh, on your head. Come on, where are you at? Honesty test here. Anybody? Anybody done that? Uh, oh, good. All right. The rest of you are like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you really didn't know they were? No. Have you ever had that? I've done that recently, of course. And uh, <laughs> these days, I think when it comes to prophecy and this whole topic of prophecy, I'm like, it's right there in front of our eyes. And I don't even, re I don't even know if we realize how close we are. And I, what I want to kind of bring across today is that there are markers of the last days of the return of Jesus. And some of those markers are specific to the time right before the return of Jesus. And I know there's things that messes people up about this topic. And I know there's stuff where people just like kind of go, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And that's what I want to do is just kind of do weird that a bit. Walk through a passage that is a marker of the last days and just help you see how right in front of your eyes this is. Now, there's three things when it comes to prophecy. Now, there's many things, but there's three main things I think that can mess people up. They kind of go, whoa, wait a minute, buddy. I don't know about this. The first one is, if you've got a pen, jot it down, people's predictions are wrong. Let's just be honest. We all, maybe all heard, who heard of Harold Camping, the guy from Florida, that was like, oh, yeah, okay, so the world's going to end on this day. And so what was hurting to him was that it didn't, right? <laughs> it's like, and we're still here, Harold. And what happens is with people that make predictions and they go, hey, prophecy is about predictions and we're predicting this, it can get messed up. And I don't know about you, but uh, he, he pred predicted a day, which for me already, I mean, Jesus has no one know the day or the hour, right? So if you're predicting the day, with time zones alone, you can be wrong 23 out of 24 hours. Do you hear what I'm saying here? I mean, probably Jesus is like, we can't, well, we can't let him predict a day because there's 23 time zones. But yeah, on its own, it's a little ridiculous to say a day, right? And so the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour. And people love that verse. When it comes to prophecy, there's two extremes with this. First, the word prophecy means to speak forth or to predict. It does. But also to speak forth truth. That's what it means. And so nobody has a problem with people speaking forth truth. What they have a problem with is people predicting. Because the moment you predict something that's wrong, all of a sudden everybody goes, oh, it's wacky, it's wacky. And so Christians often find themselves in two extremes when it comes to this. And I know, by the way, that you guys have been looking at prophecy a little bit lately, right? Who was here for Isaiah 17? All right, it's one of our favorite things to teach in Israel. So I think you're a little more primed for this than the last church. I'm not dissing on them, I'm just saying. No, I'm having fun. But here's the deal. Christians often take two extremes in this. They're either on the side of, I mean, you know, you probably have a weird friend, usually an uncle, that is on the side of, oh, this is Jesus. Oh, there's a boat in the water. That represents, the, he's coming sooner because look, and you're like, calm down, calm down. So some prophecy people get really freaky and everything, like in the Gibson Sun. Do you have a Gibson Sun? Harold, Gibson Times. Help me up. The recorder? The reporter. Let's go with that. No disrespect. You're like, that's my paper. Okay. All right. But I mean, some people, some Christians, it's like everything in the reporter is like, oh, that's prophecy. That's prophecy. And it's a little weird, you know? And, and you probably have a friend like that. 
But then there's like people on the other side, and this is where they go to the other extreme, and they go, well, we don't know, so we shouldn't guess. The Bible says no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. And that's like their catchphrase for just stop talking about prophecy. But that is not what you see in the scripture. In fact, when the disciples roll up to Jesus one day, Matthew 24, and they say, hey, Jesus, how close are we to your return? Which shows us what? That it's natural in us to ask, does he diss him? Does he go, no one knows the day or the hour. Uh-uh. He starts laying out, here's some signs right before my return. That's what he does. That's how Jesus handles prophecy. He's like, great question. Here's some things we can see right before I come back. Love it. So we shouldn't be afraid of that because, yes, no one knows the day or the hour, but there is a season, and Jesus says you should watch for the season. In fact, he says, when you see these signs, when you see these things line up, look up. Your redemption is near. That's what he says. There is a time. There is a generation Jesus talks about. There is a last generation that will see my return. Wow. Isn't that cool? And, of course, some people just say, well, it's so arrogant to assume it's us. Well, forget that. It's arrogant to assume that it won't happen. It's going to happen. Why not us? And I think each generation should look at it prophetically. And so predictions throw people off a bit. I mean, they did it with, let me show you, they've done it with the Antichrist here. Have a look at this. They did it with the Antichrist. A lot of people said, oh, it's Napoleon. That's the best photo I could get of Napoleon with his cell phone. Taking a selfie. Um, <laughs> sorry if it came up short. Okay. Anyway, Napoleon. People said, oh, Napoleon's the Antichrist. And then what happened? Oh, right. He died. And so... <laughs> So they're like, I guess it's not him. And then World War II, people said, oh, it's Hitler. Hitler's the Antichrist, right? And then, believe it or not, there's a strong push online. You can Google it sometime, not now while you're in church. But some people said Danny DeVito's the Antichrist. And so I think it's in the eyes. I don't know. But anyway, but you can see how wrongful predictions about places and times and events messes people up. Here's the second thing that turns people off. People's positions differ. They just do. When it comes to prophecy, Christians are hilarious. I mean, we should be fighting over like our neighbor getting saved. But what we usually fight over is prophecy. <laughs> it's like some people are like, I'm a pre-tribber, okay? And I'm a mid-tribber. And someone else will say, I'm a post-tribber. And then somebody else will say, I'm pre-mill. And someone else will say, I'm ah-mill. And someone else will say, I'm post-mill. And my mom's like, she's like, I'm pan-mill. I just think it's all going to pan out in the end. Amen? It's just going to all... <laughs> We need to just calm down. Don't you agree, church? I mean, we all, I haven't met a Christian yet that doesn't believe Jesus is coming back. Who's with me? Jesus is coming back. Show of hands. Good. Most of you. Okay. A little slow. Come on. All right. But we all believe Jesus is coming back. In one sense, who cares when it is? Just grace here. Okay. Post troopers are like, well, actually, no. But, but do you understand? These things can throw people. And, and, and we get so messed up about this. But can I just state the obvious? When we get to heaven, we shall all, to some degree or not, be surprised. Wouldn't you agree? I don't think there's any prophecy nerd that gets to heaven and the rest of us are like, darn it. How's he so smart? And he's like, I knew it. This, this, the just like I said. No, 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 no. Maybe one of the disciples. Probably not. Do you know what I'm saying? We're all going to be surprised. No one has the corner on this. There's enough things to get wrong, and we need to approach these things with a little bit of humility, but it shouldn't shut us off. Here's the third thing that messes people up. Ready? Life continues. Life continues. Check it. You know what this is like. Your work, your stuff, your mess, your stress, your finances, your kids, your family, your relationships. Life just happens. And because life happens, what happens is prophecy, when we are staring at it, it's great for us, but often it sort of moves away. 
because just life happens. When your boss yells at you, I'd be amazed if any of you inside is instantly your go-to is prophecy. And when your boss is yelling at you, the last thing you're thinking of is prophecy. You're not like, oh, sorry for not getting that report in on time. I wonder what the 10 toes of Daniel's prophecy nine mean. You just, you, you know, are you with me here, church? Like that doesn't, you don't do that. And prophecy goes to the back when you're dealing with the stress of your life. But just because life happens that doesn't mean the prophecy stops happening. The Bible talks about towards the return of Jesus, it being like birth pangs on a woman. And we know, sorry, you know, ladies, you know birth pangs on a woman, they get closer together and more intense before the birth of the child. And so this is what's happening just because you may or may not be paying attention. I promise you, prophecy people are freaking out because it's happening faster and more intensely every day. I'm going to say something which I believe is just really brilliant. Are you ready? You want to jot this down? Write this down and tweet this. Here it is. We're closer now than we've ever been. Deep, hey? You heard it here. (laughs) But you'd have to agree. We're closer now than we've ever been. Amen? And because of that, it's more intense and it's closer together. And I guess I want to just kind of say this before we get into these six markers. One more thing about prophecy. People on the extreme of who cares, it doesn't matter, it doesn't affect, I would disagree. But there's a lot of Christians today that are scoffing at the idea that Jesus can return. Do you know that First Peter tells us that's the very mark of the nearness of the return of Jesus? First Peter says, in the last days, there'll be scoffers who will say, oh, come on. You've always said Jesus is coming. Even our dad said it. Look it up sometime. We don't really have time to go there. But and, and now he's not here. So why don't we just get on with life and forget about it? The very mark of the last days is when the generation before the return of Christ says, oh, come on. He hasn't come back yet. And can I just say this? People, uh, scholars have always said, oh, that's, you know, when the world says, you know, Jesus hasn't returned yet. I don't hear that in the world. Guess where I hear the scoffing? In the church. That's just my theory, but here's what I think. I think the last days, right before the return of Jesus, is marked by the church having a general scoff towards Jesus' return. Why is that, Joel? Well, if you follow through Revelation, the lukewarm church, the church of Laodicea, right? They're the ones that are cold to the things of God. Jesus also referenced it. He said, hey, right before I come back, let me give you an illustration of the 10 virgins, right? Their lamps aren't lit. They're asleep. They're missing it. And so I really believe that the scoffers in the last days, right before the return of Jesus, are the Christians in the church saying he hasn't come back yet. Who cares? That's what I believe. And I believe we're living in those days right now. It's the time where the lamps are out where the church is cold and Jesus is right out around the corner. All right, let's look at these six markers. We're going to look at six signs, if you will, that it's right in front of you. Here's the first one. We're going to jump back 2,600 years and to the prophecy found in Ezekiel 38. But first, let's do some background on the passage. Ezekiel was a prophet of the first exile. And uh, this is cool. There were three prophets of the exile. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem teaching. Daniel, of course, was in Babylon at the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel by the river Kabar there in Babylon. And he prophesied that Jerusalem, which had not been captured yet, have a look, that had not been captured yet, would fall in 606. And it happened exactly as he said it. And his message at this point began to change. And isn't it kind of cool that he was a contemporary? If you think about it, Ezekiel was at the same time as Jeremiah and Daniel, contemporaries. 
all doing different ministry, if you will. And Jeremiah, when they prophesied, Jerusalem hadn't been captured yet, but Ezekiel rolls into the scene and God tells him it's going to happen. And it went down exactly like he said it. And so now what you have is this fall and his message changes. And in the book of Ezekiel, after the fall of Jerusalem from chapters 33 to 39, God gives him a different message. And he starts telling us about a future time when Israel, after they've been scattered, will be back in the land again. And so in Ezekiel 37, the prophet gets a vision right there. You can see it on the screen. It took me a while to draw that, but I hope you like it. Um, It's quite a famous vision. It's the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And when he gets this vision, Israel is in the north. The 10 northern tribes have been taken into captivity about 100 years before by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. And so you have Israel and Judah, and they're divided in a dry land. It's super cool. And Ezekiel sees the bones representing this, and he's ordered to prophesy that these bones that were dead and desolate and out of their homes would one day come to life again. And actually God gives him a prophecy of two sticks, and he says, bang them or put them together because the two nations are going to become one nation again. And, and he's ordered to prophesy that these bones will come to life again and that these bones will become a nation, the nation of Israel. And so he speaks the word of God to the bones in the prophecy and they come to life in chapter 37, 9 to 14. He speaks to them and breathes over them and now they become a generation reborn. And he goes on in chapter 37 to describe them coming back into the land and a third temple built, which is super cool. Anybody here been to Israel? If you come with us, we go to the Temple Institute and we look, they're building all, they're putting all the stuff in place for the third temple right now. They're building stones offsite. They're building a replica. They've got the ephod. They've got the menorah. Everybody, 10,000 people walk by the menorah in a week. Like it's all right there. It's all in preparation for the third temple. And so, and they're, they're waiting for their Messiah. This year is the year of Jubilee. It's their uh, 50th celebration, if you will, and also it lands on their 70th as a nation, May 14th, 1948, and there's flags in Israel welcoming the Messiah because they think he's going to come this year. Interesting. Then in Ezekiel 38, 39, he gives us markers that will show us what happens right before the return of Jesus and after the nation has been reborn and is settled in the land as it is today. Now, that's kind of, let's just stop there and pause for a second. It's kind of important. It's a big deal. Why? Because, listen, the prophet asks the question, can a nation be reborn in a day? And the answer is there's no nation that's ever been reborn in a day that's been wiped off the face of the earth. You will never go to the mall. Do you have a mall here? Sorry. I'm not dissing. I'm asking. You have one? Two two malls. Seashell only had one. Yeah, Gibsons. Woo. Okay. All right. Just kind of. That was a down moment. All right. Well, we share one. Okay. Anyway. So uh, you don't go to the mall and run into some guy and he's like, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm an Amorite. I'm from Canaan. You don't, there's no Canaanites. There's no Amorites, Hittites, or Flebites. They're all gone. Okay? All those nations are gone. But Israel was kicked out of the land AD 70. They did what was called the diaspora. They were spread out to all the nations of the world. 
And Ezekiel said they're going to come back. Ezekiel 37, they're going to form a nation and be in the land again. It happened May 14th, 1948. That was the beginning of the prophetic clock. We're on the 70th year right now, the year of Jubilee, the year of freedom, the year that they expect the Messiah will come. Interesting. Check out verse 1, chapter 38. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you, O God, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 does this. It identifies a bunch of nations will come against Israel right before the return of the king. That's what that chapter is about. Chapter 37 tells us there's going to be a temple, there's going to be these things, and, and then there's going to be armies that come against Israel. They'll be in the land right next to the east of Israel. Now remember, in Ezekiel's time, he gave the names of the places in those days, but we have to work out what those areas were and check out what country that is today from that time. So prophecy begins with a word of warning here to Gog and Magog, and the word Gog, if you're a note taker, simply means ruler. And so the question is, who's the ruler of the land of Magog? Because that's a big deal. And uh, I, you know, I go back and forth on this. I lean mostly towards Russia. In 500 BC, Greek historian Herodotus identified the land of Magog as the Scythians, and they're the ancestors of present-day Russia. Uh, Roman historian Flavius Josephus, he said, it's Russia. The Encyclopedia Britannica did mass research on this, and they agreed that it is indeed the area of present-day Russia. Now, some say, uh, you know, no, it's Turkey. Turkey, and that's fine, and it's compelling, and, and uh, you know, on, catch me on the right day, and I might go, yeah, I think Turkey's a compelling argument, but I lean just slightly to Russia, and I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but they're wrong, and I'm right. So, <laughs> I'm kidding. Verse 4, but not really. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with buckler shields, all of them handling swords. Marker number one, check it out. Marker number one, Russia and Turkey start moving troops towards Israel. It says something hooks these guys like fishing. They're lured into battle. We'll talk more about what it is that lures them in. So the, cra the first question we want to ask, the six markers of the return or how close we are to the return of Jesus and the rapture, rapture of the church and the return of Jesus, we want to ask this question, um, is Russia and Turkey drawn towards Israel right now? <laughs> yeah, for the first time in history. Check it out. Putin tells Erdogan ties with Turkey are fully restored. This has never happened in history. September 29th last year, they met in Ankara. November 13th last year, they meet in Sochi and they're back together and they're in accord. And they're sending, and the, the next question is, okay, yeah, but Joel, are they sending troops? Check it out. Have a look. Here's the next one. Putin signed Syria-based deal cementing Russia's presence for half a century. Just like Ezekiel said, they set up a base nine months ago. Russia did. And they now have four bases in Syria. Really interested in Syria, aren't they? How about Turkey? Check out the next slide here. September 23rd, Turkey is to establish eight bases in the Idlib province. And that's exactly what they've been doing is building bases. There's actually a guy from the Turkey is Gog or is the Antichrist camp. 
Uh, and, and some of his stuff's a little wacky, so I don't always quote him. But he says, Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, is the Antichrist. And the nearer he gets to Turkey on the right here, if you look, he's got a map. And he, I don't know if you can see it down on the far right-hand side, maybe because I'm blocking it for some of you. But the nearer that Turkey gets to Israel, he says the nearer Jesus will get to Israel because he, he's so convinced that um, Erdogan is the Antichrist. And he's got a map. You can check it on his website, High, High Time to Awake. And I don't agree with everything, but it's interesting. He's making the turkey argument, and he's saying, uh, just follow them, and when that happens, we're out of here. Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and its troops, the house of Turgamon from the far north, all its troops, many people are with you. Verse 7, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that gathered about you, and be a guard for them. Okay, so now it adds that Russia and Turkey will join up with three other nations. Persia, which is present-day, anybody? Iran. And also Ethiopia, which is not present-day Ethiopia. It's actually present-day Sudan and Libya. So the second marker is another list of nations. Iran, Sudan, and all these nations are presently battling where today? In Syria. Amazingly. Marker number two. Check it out. They're going to form a coalition with Iran and a couple other smaller nations. So what it tells us in Ezekiel is you have Russia, you have Turkey, and they align with Iran and a couple other smaller nations, and they come after Israel. So the question we're asking is, is Iran drawn also towards Israel in alliance with Russia and Turkey? This is amazing. Something happened recently in history that's of huge significance of prophecy. November 22nd, 2017. Have a look here. This is unbelievable. Never before in the history of the human race have all these three nations aligned. You have Russia, you have Turkey, and you have Iran, Iran, Iran which is a Joel way of saying Iran. And they're in alliance. And people go, well, how did this happen? I'm not going to be political. That's not a thing for me. I'm not a real political guy. But what literally happened is Obama in his administration pulled out of Syria and said, you guys sort it out. And so a vacuum was left and Putin came in and said, hey, I'll fill that vacuum. And you guys know this, right? If there's a bully in the playground and you don't deal with the bully, what does he do? He just keeps bullying. And that's what you have. Make no mistake. There is an absolute... Uh, attack going on here because there was a vacuum and Iran in November of last year about five to six months ago started building military bases just south of Damascus hmm why would you want to be in the region Iran I wonder I wonder if perhaps uh, because the two leaders on the outside Erdogan and the leader of Iran have both said expressively you can look at this online fact check this they've both said our goal is the destruction of Israel that's it unashamedly this is not like oh, joel you can't make that up i'm good they've said it you you might not catch it on fake news or whatever you want to call it but it's a fact they're saying it and so they announced that they um russia at this point when they moved into syria here's what they said from this point on after this alliance with these two other guys that that syria is now considered a russian state Okay, goodbye, Syria, because basically Syria is not the country of Syria anymore. It's a Russian state, according to Russia. And Assad has not argued with this. Of course, he has no grounds to argue. And so Russia said, if you attack Syria, you attack us, which is interesting. Why? Because only four weeks ago, a jet flew into Israel, 
a Russian jet and was shot down by Israel. So if he's going to stand by what he said, then Israel is already at war with Russia. Not to mention that if he's going to stand by what he said when Trump sent 100 missiles into Damascus, I'm sorry, I just get blown away. We're right there. It's just amazing. It's right in front of our eyes. When he sent 100 missiles in, according to that, that means Russia and uh, America are at war right now. How did Israel respond, by the way, when, when Iran put a base outside of Damascus? Here's what they did. They bombed the base. And they're like, we're just not going to let anybody march in here and set up camp who wants to destroy us. And it, Iran said that's their goal all along. Verse, verse 8. After many days, you'll be visited. And these are keywords you want to underline these because it's a phrase that used through the Bible that means uh, right before the Messiah shows up. In the latter years, those are the words, you will come into the land of those brought back, this is Israel, from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. That perfectly describes one nation, the nation of Israel, which had long been desolate and they're brought out of the nations and now they dwell safely. So then he says there's going to be in the latter days a sign, a marker, if you will, a reminder that God says this will happen in the latter days. They will gather on the mountains of Israel. So marker three is the mountains of Israel. And keep this slide up for a bit because I just want you to get an idea of the topography for a second. That's a huge marker right there. People go, what? Who cares? The mountains of Israel, big deal. Well, in 1948, when Israel became a nation again, they didn't have the mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel, if you look in the top right corner, can you see the word Golan? On both sides, Golan Heights and over there, Golan. Right, what nation is it right next to? Syria. Now, we never had those. I say we. Look at me. I'm so proud of Israel right now. But we're... We, we never had that piece of land. Those are the mountains of Israel. That's what they're called. I can't help. I, I just hope you're grasping this. It's right in front of your eyes. There is a distinct marker in the Bible in this prophecy. He says, the mountains of Israel, right in the latter days before the return of the king, the mountains of Israel. Okay, now watch this. Have a look at the next slide. Something we visit on our biblical tour is the Golan Heights. And you probably can't tell it great from here, but basically it's a fun place to go. Usually I'm doing the teaching there, and I am uh, facing you guys like here with Damascus behind me, and we're on the Golan Heights. And I always try to watch people's eyes because I'm like, if their eyes start getting bigger, then I'm like, I'm running to the bus. You know, <laughs> like, don't worry. It's not that scary. It's just a fun thing we do when we're there. But we realize Damascus, Syria is right behind us. And we are high up. It is militaristically an important place for Israel that they're never going to give up, uh, I hope. Because if they do, it's done for them. Uh, and so the other thing we know that's a marker is they didn't have the Temple Mount or the place of the temple, if you will, which the prophecy says, hey, in Ezekiel 37, the prophecy of the third temple is going to be built. But something happened that's a clear marker that we're in the days of this prophecy, and not back in some other time. People say, well, this maybe could have been in the time of Jesus. No, and here's why. 19 years after its independence as a nation, Israel, in 1967, have a look right here. This was the Six-Day War. They fought the Six-Day War and defended themselves against many enemies. And in that war, they won back the mountains of Israel, the Golan Heights. And so you couldn't say until any time after 1967 that they had the mountains of Israel. 
And so the Bible says here they're going to return to the land. They'll be attacked in the last days. It can't be fulfilled until any other time in history until after 1967. Everybody with me on that one? Now, not only that, but it says it was a desolate land when they came back into it. Israel was not desolate in, in Jesus' day. Read, read the New Testament. All through the Gospels, there's lush vegetation, and Jesus kind of walks through the land, picks figs and grapes, and the disciples do, and all these great things. But after they were scattered in AD 70, Israel became a desolate country, devoid of vegetation, human population, and, uh, and Mark Twain, when he went there, he described it in the early 18th century. He said, man, there's hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. It's a desolate place. That's not the case right now. Now, stay with me. Look at verse 9. You will ascend, these armies, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and the many peoples with you. Marker number four. Marker number four, none of these nations specifically border Israel. You say, well, how's that a marker? It might seem small, but it's actually kind of a big deal. Why? He says right here, you're going to come like a cloud and descend upon Israel with all your troops. Here's why. How can any of these nations attack Israel today without being seen? Well, what do you mean, Joel? Listen, they're nowhere near Israel. Check this map. I've got a, another map here for you, a better map. Look where the graphics aren't great on this, but it shows you. Look where all the ancient nations described here are. And where is Israel? Right in the middle of that little red dot. It's not even big enough to get its own like color. I think it's green, but it's small. All these other nations are far away from Israel. You say, well, why is that a, a marker? Here's why. Because if Russia decides to attack Israel, I mean, Israel, they're going to be moving troops across land for days on end. And it's not, and Israel's going to see them on satellite and have tons of time to prepare. And how are these guys going to jump and descend like a cloud? It's not going to happen. It would take days and days and days and days. So I think it's a, another marker because here's what happened. Have a look at this. ISIS moved into the region. And this is so key. Why? If it wasn't for ISIS... Russia would not come into Syria. If it wasn't for ISIS, Iran wouldn't come into Syria. And if it wasn't for ISIS, Turkey wouldn't invade into northern Syria. And all of these groups and all of these nations that line up perfectly with Ezekiel 38 right before this battle, and I believe where the church is raptured and then it all breaks out. Listen, all these nations right now, they're hanging their coats on ISIS. Don't misunderstand this. The world powers know that if it took concentration, if they work together, they could get rid of ISIS, some say, in two to three days. But they don't want to do that. Why? Because for the most part, ISIS serves a purpose for each of them. And the problem right now is that ISIS is the excuse, friends, not the real reason. You have to know this. Just because you see on the news, oh, ISIS, the problems of ISIS, it's an excuse for these nations to move into the region, to perfectly line up as they are now for the unfolding of Ezekiel 38. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Now, 
Verse 11 says they dwell in peace and safety. And they do rel relatively. I mean, they still have squirmishes. But look, anyone been to Israel? Hands up if you've been to Israel. Did you feel unsafe? No. In fact, most people that go to Israel the first time they land and they're like, oh, did you feel this? It's like home away from home, right? I mean, I would encourage you if you haven't been, it's like, it's like a year of Bible college in two weeks. And it is just an amazing adventure to go. And it's a peaceful land and the fruits and the vegetation and the history. And it is just amazing what it does in people's relationship with the Lord. So I'd encourage you to join us on those or the Asia Minor Tour next year. But you feel safe when you're in Israel. You really do. And so he, I, I spoke with my bank advisor. He's a Jewish guy. I share the gospel with him all the time. He just got back from Israel. And he was uh, so pumped. Uh, when this happened, and I know, look, I, I don't want to ruin anyone's breakfast, but go ahead and show the next slide here. Sorry about that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> he was so pumped. Why? Because he said every one of his friends in Israel right now is so jazzed about Trump's declaration that Jerusalem is the capital and that they're moving the embassy there. Now, to some of us, we think, well, who cares? But you have to understand this. The Jews, he said, he's not a Christian. He said the Jews want three primary things. They want peace, number one. And number two, he said they want, they want the Messiah to come. And many of them believe it's this year in Israel. And, but they know, number three, these are his words, the Messiah can't come until the third temple's built. So the push is, let's get the third temple built, then the Messiah can come. It's all happening right now. And for him, he's like, hey, it's the year of Jubilee. It'd be awesome if it came on our platinum 70th anniversary and on our year of Jubilee, wouldn't it? He's coming at it as a Jewish guy. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're going to see it's Jesus. But anyway, um, he said, those are the three things. And so he said, Joel, the embassy moving and the establishing as Jerusalem to the whole world is so key for us. And, and we might go, well, who cares what Trump's going to do and all that? But you have to understand that for the Arab world, for the Muslim world, they're not going to just sit by with an embassy moved into Jerusalem. That is a declaration of war. So the tinderbox is set up and the wick is being lit, my friends, and we are right there on the front of it. You say, well, what, Joel, does it really matter if the embassy's moved and all that? Well, it fulfills prophecy. Zechariah 12, 2 says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup, a cup of drunkenness for all the surrounding peoples and the nations of the world. And they're going to come, Ezekiel 38, and try to lay siege on Jerusalem. It's in your Bible. When does this happen? Zechariah says, right before Israel sees the one whom they've pierced. Right before Zechariah 12, they see the one whom they've pierced and mourn and realize it's their only son. Who's that? It's Jesus. And listen, Matt's probably told you, but uh, five tours ago, I think it was five tours, somewhere between three and five tours ago, I just preached on that on the Mount of Olives that they'll look upon him whom they pierce and mourn as an, for an only son. And the tour guide, and this was a tour before Matt's and Brent's, but I was on a different tour. I finished preaching there, and the tour guide comes up to me, and he's this grumpy Jewish guy, and he's like, where does it say that in your Bible? I said, well, it's right here in Zechariah 12. He goes, show me that. And so I show him this passage about how they look on him whom they've pierced and mourn us for an only son. His name's Avi, and then he's like, well, that's Jesus. I'm like, yeah. And then I share the gospel with him, and he prays to receive Christ right on the Mount of Olives. Isn't that amazing? 
But if that's one guy that saw one passage, he's one of he thinks he's one of fifteen to twenty-five tour guides who are believers now, Jewish believers in Israel out of ten thousand. What's gonna happen when the rest of those tour guides are in the Kidron Valley like Zachariah says, and they look on the one whom they've pierced? They're gonna go, it's Jesus, and mass revival will break out. And the Bible says that all of those in the Kidron Valley will be saved. And so it is all coming together. First Thessalonians says it this way. For when they say, you can, there we go. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. So why are they coming? Verse 12, to take plunder, it says, and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who've acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, livestock and goods, and to take plunder? Just two more markers. Marker number five. They come to take booty, all right? That's the best picture I could find on this one. And I really, I'm sorry, I should have called, that's a strange word, isn't it, booty? I should have called this sermon Booty and the Beast. But anyway, um, it says right here in verse 12 that the leader of Gog and Magog, so let's just go with, I think it's the Russian leader, will come to take something that does not belong to him, that is plunder and booty. Now, do we have a leader who's in Russia presently who likes to take away things that don't belong to him? Uh, yeah, Ukraine, Crimea. I mean, he just moved into Syria not too long ago, and now he's bombing. And this may sound shocking, but this is true. I'm not smearing someone. I'm just giving you facts. He is now presently in Syria bombing women and children and homes, and it doesn't make the news. And he doesn't seem to care. NATO's asked him to stop repeatedly, and he's not. And you have to understand that's the tension that produces this, okay, enough is enough. And so he keeps moving more and more troops into the area and shelling the area. They've built four bases, Russia has, in Syria. And verse 9 says there's this lure like fish hooks that draws them in. I don't know exactly what the lure is, but I know six years ago on the mountains of Israel, they discovered on the Golan Heights, sorry, six years ago, they discovered a gas field off the coast of Israel they call Leviathan, which will give them like 100 years of fuel and then uh this next slide on the golan heights 24 months ago they discovered massive uh oil reserve of billions and billions of barrels of oil and russia needs oil they've made that plain and simple you go to russia there's pipes running all across israel because they don't have or running across russia because they don't have oil so they have pipes everything's about the pipelines in russia now it may not be that specific it may be simply the spoils of war like Putin got when he took over Crimea and the U eastern Ukraine. So we don't know what the booty is, but we know that this is what leads him into war. And as a side marker, verse 13, it lists somebody that actually says, whoa, this is wrong. And it says the words Sheba and Dedan, which is interesting. Why? Because that's Saudi Arabia. Now, 25 years ago, Saudi Arabia wouldn't have said a thing. But right now, who are they aligned with? Israel. And that has not been the case. Here's Saudi Arabia is asking the question, why are you guys marching against Israel? You want riches, don't you? That's a paraphrase, but that's what they're doing. And, and it's interesting that they're the ones speaking up. And it's an alarming final marker. The sixth final marker, and I'll give it to you here, is this, that the nations that aren't mentioned in this passage, 
What about the nations that aren't mentioned? Where's Egypt? That's interesting. Egypt right now, shockingly, is aligned also with Israel. They're not involved. Where's Jordan? They're not involved, and they're aligned with Israel. There's only one eastern nation that is against Israel right now, and it's Syria. Jordan is not, and Egypt is to the south, and they're not presently. Uh, they share people. We went to Jordan. They have employees cross over and work in each other's countries freely right now. Where's Iraq? Interesting that Iraq, who used to be a player, is not mentioned. And, you know, after the desolation of Iraq, it's interesting. Most alarmingly, though, perhaps for some, is the fact that America's not even mentioned. And I would say, basically, that's because through the last administration, they gave an inverted Middle East policy and handed the reins over to Putin. And Iran moved in. But how come this is being questioned by Saudi Arabia and not America? Well, for some reason, they're not a player in the end times. And there's a couple of reasons, like maybe why that would happen. People don't like to think about it. But if you have a look, I mean, Ru Russia, Putin predicts global chaos if the West hits Syria again. He said that those words before the missiles went into Damascus. And so, you know, that recently he got up on a summit and did his own PowerPoint presentation and showed off all the weapons they have. And he stated they could take out America in a day. Now, North Korea, who knows what's going to happen there? But North Korea, of course, tested an ICBM right uh, high enough in the air that if they detonated it over America, it could be an EMP situation and shut down the electronics. And I just spoke with a guy today who's up on that and works in that and says, it's not that hard to do. People go, oh, EMP, that's garbage. He said, it's not that hard from the other church. And so Putin's promised chaos if the U.S. were to send missiles to Damascus, but they did it anyway. So things are heating up. Interesting, California. Here's another one. California recently had a drill. I was down there when it was going on, and they, uh, they, had, they called for a blackout drill all across California. And they were like, Joel, it's the weirdest thing. They're like shutting down California for a period of time to test to do a dry run, what it would be like if an EMP went off. And you guys also know, like, Hawaii. Uh, somebody in here was in Hawaii. You guys hear about that? The Hawaii, the, everybody's cell phone's off saying missiles are coming. Not fun. Not fun. But probably not an accident. You get that, right? I mean, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I'm really not. But, like, this is how you prepare for war. You prepare your people and their reactions as well. And so a lot of people just saw that as them testing how people would react and uh, you know, drill in, in response to this. And so who knows? But it's interesting that, again, Iraq is not mentioned, and 10 years ago that would have been a shock. Syria's not mentioned in this battle, and yet it says that the attack is on the mountains of Israel. That's huge. Why? Because the mountains of Israel are right next to Syria. But Syria's not a nation when this war happens, apparently, or not, or not caring or has been defeated or destroyed. And we know if you saw, I think it was a couple weeks ago, Isaiah 17, the Bible talks about before the return of Jesus, that Damascus will be destroyed. And that nation, that city has not been destroyed yet. In history, it stands as a marker of prophecy because it's the one, the longest perpetually inhabited city on the face of the earth and it still stands today but if you go look at it now like the words say rubble guess what if you look at it go do before and after picture of syria and you'll see amazingly damascus which is basically a city state is just destroyed it's rubble right now now if we keep reading into 
chapter 39, and we're almost done. Check it out. That's what it says. I will send a fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely, I love this line, it is coming and it shall be done. Isn't that good? God says it's coming, it's gonna happen. This is the day of which I have spoken. And it goes on to tell us that God completely obliterates sending fire upon these armies that come against Israel. And, you know, probably it's nuclear. Why? Because certainly Ezekiel 39 then looks like a cleanup for seven years, interesting, they clean up post-nuclear is what it looks like. They put special suits on. I'm not making this up. Go read Ezekiel 39. It says they have to have special suits to clean up this whole disaster. And for seven years, they're cleaning it up. Now, the people, people always ask, okay, Joel, how could this thing go down? <laughs> it's a fun one, right? And so I'm not going to tell you, pay attention. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Nobody can do that. No one knows the day or the hour. But perhaps there is... You know, I'm just going to lay out, maybe this is how it is. Maybe this year, as of April 18th, just, what, 10 days ago, was the beginning of the calendar year for the 70th celebration. So all the celebrations right now in Israel, my Jewish friends are telling me, are taking place right now, and it's pretty amazing. But the, um, the chief of the Israeli uh, armed forces has said this will be potentially our most extreme year of danger in our history. That's what he said. Potentially more than 1967, more than 1948, and all the wars that they fought to stay. He said this year, because this year is when the world is saying, no, you can't call Jerusalem the capital. This year is when they're celebrating their independence, when they're celebrating their birth as a nation. This year, he said. And again, so here, you know, kind of track it through with me, and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, People are waving flags or expecting their Messiah. Isaiah 17 says when it, if you will, Israel is the focal nation of prophecy. Jerusalem is the center point. And if you ask what's going to happen around Jerusalem right before Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, then you have to say, well, the markers in the Bible, Isaiah 17, Jeremiah 49, are what? Damascus is destroyed. It's the kickoff point. So you really want to say when all the nations that are lined up in Ezekiel 38, when they're on the border of the mountains of Israel, that's right before this happens. Is that happening right now, church? Yes. So that's a marker. And, and then also when the specific part of Syria that is attacked is Damascus and it looks like it could be threatened from existence, that is even more a pinpoint in the prophetic end times. And so I think what you're going to have happen, perhaps, again, before the rapture, the calling up of the church, is perhaps the trigger point is the embassy gets moved and or simultaneously Damascus gets taken out. It lights the wick to a World War III. Somehow Russia and U.S., who knows if North Korea is in there, line up and attack each other. And somehow it, the U.S., just to be blunt, is not a player anymore. Could be economic, could be war, could be EMP. We don't know. The rapture of the church, we're caught up to be together with the Lord. Then Russia, Turkey, and Iran move on Israel. 
and they're going to try to seize the Golan Heights. And then God intervenes, either through nuclear or in person, I'm not sure. There's seven years of cleanup. A world leader, an antichrist, appears with a peace solution to the three world religions. He offers to build, Revelation says this, the temple in Jerusalem and also Ezekiel 37. It's already underway right now. Possibly at a different site, maybe not, but I think it's in the place. He set, signs a seven-year peace treaty by Israel, Daniel 9, because they want their temple, and they want their Messiah, and they want peace, and they won't get that until it's built. Then three and a half years in, he breaks treaty with Israel, declares himself as God, demands worship, and Israel is under attack. They both fight and they flee. Jerusalem is surrounded. I'm just piecing together different verses. Jesus shows up in a in a at the first of a three-staged plan, first to Petra where they fled, then Jerusalem where they realize he's their Messiah with nail-pierced hands, and then the Battle of Armageddon, which I just like to say there is no Battle of Armageddon because Jesus shows up and breathes on him and it's game over. There's no Battle of Armageddon. They come, but he's like, oh, and it's over. So anyway, um, <laughs> just when you're talking about the Battle of Armageddon, it's just the people ready to fight and it doesn't happen. And so then what happens? He destroys the Antichrist and he takes over, walks down the Kidron Valley up onto the Temple Mount, and he reigns as king over all forever and ever. 2,600 years ago, as Joel comes up and closes us in worship, Ezekiel encouraged Israel that their Messiah would come on a day and take out her enemies and set up his throne and that he would reign forever and ever. He will show with nail-pierced hands because he is the same Messiah who went to the cross, was pierced for their sins, their transgressions, was bruised and pierced for their iniquities, their sins, and took all the sin of all of us upon his shoulders went to the cross, bled and died, and then three days later did something no religious leader or figure has ever done in the history of the world. And he conquered Satan, sin, death, demons, the grave, and hell, and he rose again. And he ascended to the Father, but he went to prepare a place for us because he's our soon-coming king, friends. And I want to just close with this one thought just as the music begins to play. Friends, there's two ways to look at prophecy because some people they hear this they go oh my goodness <laughs> it's freaking me out listen there's two ways to look at prophecy it's either all falling apart or it's all perfectly coming together for the return of the king amen and that's how i look at it everything all the pieces are in place for the return of the king now if you sit there and you're in a place today and you're like man i am i'm freaked out joel you know, it's like, well, then get right with Jesus. You have no reason to be freaked out. He's still seated on the throne. Whatever your situation is, he is completely Lord over all. He is sovereign, and he is here today. And again, we just see it as all coming together. And maybe there needs to be that urgency for sharing Jesus with others. Maybe there needs to be that desire to just be outflowing from your life. And so I would just encourage you. Get right with the Lord today. Let's stand and uh, I'll pray and then we'll close with the song of worship. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus, yours is the victory and th things seem to be unfolding. Guess what? The exact way you said they would in your word. 
And Lord, this is a wake-up call on our church just to realize the nearness of the return of the Lord. We don't have to wallow in fear and condemnation or guilt about what we haven't done, but to recognize you're our soon coming king. We want to be like those virgins who are ready with the lamps lit, waiting for your coming. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you'd move in each of our hearts. Give us that urgency and that joy for the Lord and that desire to share Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.